Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. this morning is Proverbs 23 verses 1 through 3. Um, but first I wanted to draw your attention that to, to the previous verse, um, chapter 22, verse 29, which we uh, studied last week. There we read that whoever excels in his work will stand before kings. But in today's verses, we learn about the dangers of associating with the wealthy and the powerful. Verses 20, chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Here we learn that it is not safe to indulge appetite in the presence of rulers. Rulers who have all the glitz and glamour and delicacies the world has to offer. We may not allow ourselves to be compromised from God's service by the world's deceptions. Because if we have do that, we have lost our purpose. It was through the desire for deceptive food that men fell into sin in the first place, in the garden. Similarly, one of the three temptations that Satan used to tempt Jesus was to show him all the glory of the kingdoms of the earth and to offer it all to him. In these two contrasting examples, Adam and Eve succumbed to their desire and Jesus gloriously controlled his the distinction between Adam and Jesus is that Adam's pride led to sin, and Jesus' humility bore the fruit of obedience. The proverb doesn't mean that all rulers are evil and their tables must be avoided at all costs. Rather, we know that there are great opportunities at the tables of rulers. Joseph sat at Pharaoh's table. Daniel sat at Nebuchadnezzar's and, and Darius's tables. And Esther sat at Ahasuerus's table. That said, the Proverbs point is conspicuous in the counterexamples. Pharaoh's baker was there too. Daniel's fellow rulers suffered the fate that they had orchestrated for Daniel. And Haman sat at banquet with Esther and the king before he was hung on his own gallows. To bring it down to us, we must restrain our appetites and refuse to compromise our service to God and our witness to Jesus Christ. Is it worth it to compromise the purity of your mind and soul because of your appetite for entertainment, for the glitz and glam of the world, for music, movies, or television? Are you sidetracked from the work of God's kingdom because your appetite for wealth and glory. You can't make it to Bible study or to church or to help somebody out in need for the sake of a dollar or sports or a remodel for a new car. The point is that we must learn to walk 
in humility before the one true God and refuse to compromise our faith, no matter how powerful our friends are or how luxurious our surroundings become or how many blessings are tossed our way. Remember that it's all just stuff and it comes from God and so do we. So thank Him, serve Him, and worship Him. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So if you're willing to name, please kneel. Today we begin the final oracle of the book of Micah. Um, in his first prophecy in chapters 1 and 2, Micah addressed the nations, and he proclaimed that God was going to hold Israel and Judah accountable for their sins. In the second prophecy, in chapters 3 through 5, Micah addressed the leaders of Judah, assuring them of coming judgment, but proclaiming a message a good news, a gospel message of hope and future restoration for the remnant of God, who, whom God would redeem. And this third oracle in chapters 6 and 7 takes the form of a covenant lawsuit that God brings against his people. Now this idea of covenant is, is, is found all through the scriptures, and it's a covenant is a word that... Um, people in Reformed circles tend to throw around without defining very uh, frequently. Um, but what the covenant is, is it's the way that God deals with his people. God comes to, to mankind on the earth, and he, in his interaction with mankind, the, the, the totality of it, we, we, we call that by the name of covenant. God comes and interacts with his people and he gives them promises. And he requires service of them. And that interaction between God and, and his people is, is where we gain all the hope of life. All the hope of the blessings of God's relationship with us is, in, is found in covenant. So God has created this people, Israel, the, the, the people of Israel that he, he created when he drew them out of, of Egypt. When they went into Egypt, they were a family. They were the children of, of, of Israel, the children of Jacob, his 12 sons and their families. When he drew them out of Egypt, he constituted a nation. And when he did that, he constituted a nation and he gave them a, a leader, Moses, and he gave them a covenant document, a national charter that we call the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. And that covenant is what the law of Israel was, or what it ought to have been. And it gave the people of Israel the promise of life and blessing, of a land flowing with milk and honey, of a rich and close relationship with the true and eternal God of heaven and earth. And that covenant is what we are called as God's people to put all our hope and all of our faith in. 
that God has come down to us and he has made promises to us and he gives to us the hope of life. And here we have Micah at the end of the kingdom of the northern kingdom of Israel and at a a crossroads for the kingdom of Judah. And he's addressing the leaders of Judah for their unfaithfulness, for their wickedness, for their failure to keep covenant. And, And in this third oracle, it comes to us in the form of a covenant lawsuit. God says, here is the law, and here you have broken it. And so through Micah, God opens this last oracle with a subpoena to the people to come to court to defend themselves. He opens it with a call to the mountains and in the earth to bear witness. Micah 6, verses 1 and 2. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So God calls his people to court. He subpoenas them. But this is, uh, it seems strange to us that God would use inanimate witnesses. But these are the witnesses that God chose from the, found, from the founding of the nation of Israel. So why does God call the earth and the mountains to bear witness against his people? And this isn't what, this isn't normal for us. We're, we live in modern times. We, we call witnesses, you know, to bear witness. But mountains and earth are inanimate. Well, this is faithful to God's covenant relationship with his people. The book of Deuteronomy um, is, in many ways, the the shorthand. The the whole Pentateuch is God's covenant charter, and it's the history of how God's people became his people. But the book of Deuteronomy is the actual covenant charter uh, of the people of God. And, And as we're going to see today, this section of Micah is full of allusions to the book of Deuteronomy. At the beginning of Deuteronomy, in chapter 4, let's turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 4, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, verses 23 to 27, we read this. This is after Moses has, has rehashed their history until they got to the point where they were on just on the east side of the Jordan. And he's told them all the, the, the story, how God called them out and the great wonders that he's done. And then he says, Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to protect, to provoke him to anger... And then here he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. 
You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be, um, uh, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. So he says, you go into idolatry, I call heaven and earth to bear witness against you. And that's at the beginning of the, of the book of Deuteronomy. And then again, at the end of the covenant charter in Deuteronomy, in chapter 30, verses 17 through 20, we read this. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life that both you and your descendants may live that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. And that's how he finishes the covenant charter. And then he has this a short uh, historical account of how he appoints Joshua to take his stead, and he instructs Israel to be faithful. But then he predicts the rebellion. So he's, he starts his covenant charter with warnings and God and calling heaven and earth to bear witness. He finishes that. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, again in chapter 31, verses, verse 28, into chapter 32, he says this. Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing, and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. So this is, this is what Moses has proclaimed from the very beginning of the creation of the people of Israel, is that they're going to fall away. And Micah has proclaimed the same thing to the, the people of Judah and the people of Israel. That you have now done this, and this judgment is coming. You will be scattered among the nations. And then he calls, what? Heaven and earth to bear witness against this people. And finally, uh, Moses then goes and, and, he, and, he, and he, he writes a song. Um, he uses... Uh, he writes a song, and he has a song to teach the people so that they're reminded of this constantly. He says, Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of God, the, uh, the, God the, the, the assembly of Israel, that the words of this song until they were ended, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. That's how the song begins. It addresses the witnesses. So that the, God's people have no excuse God's people have no excuse for their failure to keep covenant with God because he has been faithful. And his witnesses bear witness of the faithfulness that he ha has had. Now God uses these inanimate objects, the mountains and the earth, as his witnesses because they are permanent. They're constant. Generations are like grass and flowers that wither and fade. Uh, the faithful generation grows up, and they're supposed to share the gospel. They're supposed to share the covenant with their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. 
But Moses knows that people are fickle and we change. But the earth and the mountains are constant and, and they bear witness to the lasting nature and the truth of the words of God. So, God has now called the court to order and we, proclaim, we proceed to his claim on his people. God's claim on his people, verses 3 through 5. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. So God's claim to his, on his people is, is twofold. One is that he has taken them out of his Egypt. He's, given, he's constituted them. He's he set them free from slavery. And two, he's been faithful to his word. He's provided for his people. So God is faithful because he is good to his people. And he reminds them of his goodness. He says he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. He gave them leaders in Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He turned their enemies' plot against them. Yeah, Balak was the king of Moab, and he hired Balaam, the, the false prophet, to, to curse Israel because he didn't want them to be blessed in the land. And, and three times he hired Balaam to do this. And every time God changed Balaam's words from cursing to blessing for the people of Israel. And so God was faithful and he blessed his people instead of cursing them. And then the, the, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, um, Acacia Grove was the last encampment of the people of Israel before they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. It was the last place that they stayed uh, before they, 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 they inherited the promise of the promised land. And Gilgal was the first place that they stayed once they crossed the Jordan River. So this whole period that, that, that God is referencing, from the time they left Egypt until the time that they, they received the last manna from heaven, which was, it, was, which was at Acacia Grove. Because when they crossed the Jordan, they no longer received the manna because they had inherited the land. So this whole period, God has shown his righteousness to them, his faithfulness to serve. And to, he gave them water from the rock. He gave them quail. He gave them manna. He delivered them from their enemies. He, he conquered Og and Bashan, the kings of Sihon, the, the kings of uh, Og, king of Bashan, and Sihon, king of the Amorites. He, he, he delivered the, the land on the eastern side of the Jordan to the people of Israel. But now they were going into the promised land. So God's, and God's claims are grounded in history. That's why he implores his people to remember. Remember. Remember his grace. Remember his love. Remember his faithfulness. Remember his generosity and his blessings. Now this is something that Moses spent a lot of time teaching the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. He commanded them to remember. He commanded them to teach and remind their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren of this great story. The history of who they are and where they come from. Because when we forget, 
we're in trouble. Moses commanded the people to remember by teaching their children. He commanded them to remember by commemorating their covenant with God, with three feasts every year, where the people would all travel to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. That's the Exodus. The, 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 the Pentecost, that's the first fruits, God's, God's goodness in the first harvest, and, and, and the, the, the Feast of, of uh, Weeks, uh, that, the Feast of Booths, at the end of, of the harvest season, where God, they give thanks to God for His goodness, to remember where all of this faithfulness comes from. He even taught them to sing that song that I told you about a little bit ago. To remind them of God's goodness and warn them of the consequences of forgetting Him. The consequences of idolatry and forgetfulness. So remembering is vital to obedience and to faithfulness. Remembering reveals truth. Remembering causes us to confess God's goodness. And our own undeserving, our own shortcomings. It wasn't anything in us that saved us. It wasn't that the Israelites were so good that Pharaoh just set them free. No, God did that. God is righteous in his story, history, what we were supposed to remember, bears his righteousness out. So remember that. So now the court is in session, and we've established that God has a right to his people, and his righteousness is evidently displayed in history. He's justified in in having a complaint against his people. And now we come to the question of, of what is it that God expects from us? What does he want from us? What are the covenant requirements of us? And here we see that there are differences of opinion. What does God want from us? And here we see that we don't get it a lot of the time. And Micah reveals this to us with sarcasm. Micah reveals that we are out to lunch when it comes to the question of what does God expect from us? What does he want from us? And this sarcasm, this holy sarcasm from Micah, reveals what our false ideas are about what God expects from us. Verses 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? That's a fair question. What does God expect from me? If I want God, what do I need to bring? Then he, then he starts questions. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves, a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Let's talk about the text first. There's a couple of things. First, burnt offerings were required by the law. They were commanded in the law. And yearling calves were the most expensive offerings. They were considered to be the, the most pure, the, 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 most, the most expensive uh, offering that you could give. 
thousands of rams is a big step up from a yearling calf. But occasionally in Scripture we read about thousands of rams being offered by certain faithful kings at various times. Ten thousand rivers of oil is obvious exaggeration. Obviously. Ten thousand rivers of oil. Where are you going to get that from? And giving the firstborn was outright violation of the law and an abomination. But King Ahaz did exactly that. He sacrificed his firstborn son. Burned him. As, a, as an offering to God. That's quite the progression, isn't it? Can you, can you follow the logic of our false thinking in this? Let me explain it. We think that in order for us to gain an audience with God, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High God, we think that in order for us to gain an audience with Him, we must make sacrifices. And this seems reasonable, because in the law, God commanded us to make sacrifices. It seems reasonable to think that. And then the thinking goes, well, if I make a sacrifice, if I make a bigger sacrifice, I've gained more attention from God. So if I, if I make a yearling calf offering, that's, that's better than a dove or a sheep. And if the sacrifices are more of a sacrifice to us personally, if it hurts more to give of it, then it must mean more to God. Which means if I'm willing to give my first more, then I must be really something. And here's the problem. Micah's sarcasm reveals two grievous errors in our thinking about sacrifices. We think that sacrifice is about God wanting us to suffer. That's not what sacrifice is about. We think that He wants us to give up something that we want so that we can prove our devotion to Him. That's not true. We are called to sacrifice. We're told to make sacrifices. But sacrifices are not because God wants us to suffer. We sacrifice out of gratitude, out of thanksgiving, for the overwhelming blessings He, he pours on our heads. God isn't being stingy by requiring sacrifice. He's not reneging on something he gave to us. He, he's, not, he's not saying, okay, here, I'm going to give you all this, but I'm really only giving you 90% of it, because I want you to give 10% back. That's not what it's about. It's about us remembering how good he's been to us. It's, 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 it's an act of gratitude. 
So the first error is that we think God wants us to suffer when that's not what it's about at all. The second error is that we think that we can earn God's favor, that we can merit His favor, that we can deserve His grace, that we can buy His blessing. But God has told us in His Word that the cattle on a thousand hills are His. He tells us that no building can contain Him. What could we possibly give to God that could make Him owe us one? Think about it. Nothing. He owns everything already. Anything you give to Him is giving to Him what's already His. We can't make God owe us one. We can't be Grinches. Everything we are and have are already belonging to Him. So Micah has called the Israelites out on their false thinking about sacrifice. But he goes on to give us one of the simplest and clearest declarations in all of Scripture of what the big picture, of what God's covenant is all about. And this is God's truth, and it is good. Verse 8. He has shown you, O man, he's revealed it to you, what is good. And what does God, the Lord, require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? This is God's threefold requirement of his people. Justice. To do justly. This is about righteousness and truth. We cannot lie, we cannot cheat, we cannot steal or murder. We must do all we can to oppose sin. We must judge justly. Uh, Cameron read about that this morning in, in Leviticus. We must deal fairly with employees. We must discern righteously without giving partiality to the rich or to the poor. We must point to absolute truth. God. God says what is right, and His Word gives us the skill to discern it in this confusing world. We must be people of the Word so that we can do justice. Do it. And we must bear witness of God's opinion on the matter. So we may not sin ourselves. We must judge our neighbor righteously, and we must do that by telling him what God thinks about what he's doing. And we must be active in this. We can't simply imply justice. We can't simply just talk about justly. We must enact it. We must be active in doing it. So the first requirement is justice. The second is mercy. This is about compassion and love. We cannot ignore the needy or wall ourselves off from the hurting or the sick or the dying. Instead, we must help the less fortunate. We must defend the helpless. We must give grace to those who are desperately in need of it those who are lost without it. 
this kind of love is sacrificial love. It is hard, and it is expensive. That's, this, this is a sacrifice God wants from us. Love, mercy. It's hard, and it's expensive, and it's the kind of love that took Jesus to the cross for our sins and for our misery. And we're called to be like him. Be willing to pay that price. To die to ourselves for the sake of others. Now this love is in perfect harmony with justice. We don't say, okay, well, if we're going to love mercy, then we got to back off on the justice thing. Because it's not fair. That's not true. This kind of mercy is in perfect harmony with justice. We don't lie about needs or the causes of it. When we, when we love mercy, when we give of ourselves, not because we owe it to somebody, but because they are in need. And even if, when in the middle of that, we, we don't need to lie and say, oh, you deserve this. That's not necessarily true. In fact, it's more glorious if they don't deserve it. That's what Jesus does. And what good is it to you if you love those who love you? The tax collectors do that. It's when it's not deserved that it's glorious. But it doesn't help matters just to lie and say that it is deserved when it's not. So this is in perfect harmony with justice. We don't lie about the need or the causes of it. We just help. We help bear the burden. And willingly, not because we deserve it either. It's not like we deserve to suffer or we deserve to... to Jesus didn't deserve the cross. But he bore it willingly. And it's this kind of grateful sacrifice that God values. Because it is like his sacrifice. It's like him. It's the kind of sacrifice that he makes for us. And it's death. It's dying. But in the gospel, death is planting. And God grants new life to death. He resurrects the dead. You know, so we must be just, we must love mercy, and finally we must walk humbly with God. And this is the foundation of it all. This is about humility, and it's about faith, and it's about willingness to do what he tells us to do. It's about faith and obedience, simple and clear. Give up your pride and walk through the doors that he, he, he points you through. Give it up. He has what he has for you there. And if you will have faith in him, it's blessing. The covenant promises are blessing and life. Overwhelming and abundant blessing and life. So obedience and faith, it, it's not about giving stuff to God. He doesn't need it. It's about believing and trusting that he will water the seed. It's about trusting that he will revive the dead and believing and living, walking in his presence by the power of his spirit. If you will do these things, if you will stand for justice, if you will die sacrificially, and if you will walk humbly with God, 
if you will believe God's truth and His covenant and that it is good, then He has shown you what is good and you will be doing it. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. That's what God requires of us. Faith and obedience. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. and accept his free forgiveness given to you because Jesus Christ died for your sins and he offers himself to you freely in this meal showing us yet again how to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with God God doesn't expect anything from us that he hasn't modeled for us first and that he won't bear with us as we go by the power of his spirit. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.